Hello and welcome to Can I Get a Picture? I'm your host, Soul Love More. Join me as I get to pick the brains of some extraordinary people, hearing their struggles and successes that have shaped who they are today. Today we're talking to Dr. Tunde Okewale, MBE, a leading barrister and founder of Urban Lawyers, which is a registered charity that works to make the law more accessible to marginalized groups in society. He recently set up the One Case at a Time Fund, which facilitates legal funding for black people in the UK. I was introduced to Tunde by a mutual friend and we have remained great friends ever since. He's someone I highly regard. His achievements speak for themselves and are a testament to his dedication to giving back and helping the next generation. I hope you enjoy our conversation. We talked about race, socio-economic inequality, self-belief, being persistent and the power of not letting anyone define your future. Thank you, Tunde, for coming on today. I really appreciate you taking the time out. You've always been someone I've looked up to um, in everything you do, how you carry yourself and your approach to life in general. So it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this myself. I wanted to start to go right back to the start of your journey. So tell me a bit about your early life, where you were born and raised, and a bit about your childhood. I was born in Nigeria, but I don't have um, a vivid recollection of it because I came to England when I was really young. So I was brought up in the UK, went to school in Hackney, East London. I did most of my schooling there. So I went to a school called Orchard Primary School first which is just off Wall Street. And then I went to Cardinal Pole's secondary school, Roman Catholic school, again in Hackney. And that's where I did my schooling. And when I first was going through that process, I had no interest or visualisation of being a lawyer at all. At that moment in time, I was very committed to being an athlete. I had aspirations to be, you know, a high-profile athlete. So a lot of my dedication, um, commitment to practice and being better was just something I transferred when I became a bit more focused on the academic side of, of learning. What was the sport you were going after? I was good at most sports, to be fair, save for cricket, but it was athletics. 100 metres was my discipline. I could do long jump. I could do I could do the 400 metres as well. I was just generally a good sprinter. Oh, amazing. I, I didn't actually know that about you. So that's very interesting. Who would you um, who would you say inspired you as a young person? Like, was there anyone you looked up to, whether it was academically or, or sports wise? At the time I was growing up, the only kind of visual role models I had outside of my parents, I had to say that because, you know, African parents always need to get credited. So I'm making sure I've said it now and I don't need to mention them again in the podcast. The, the, disclaimers, <laughs> um, the disclaimer's been made. The disclaimer, yeah. They were all athletes. So it was like Linford Christie, Donovan Bailey before he was out as a drug cheat, um, Michael Jordan, and again, musicians. So, you know, NWA. So it was popular culture that I looked to for inspiration because those were the only visible people that I could identify with at that age it's only when I became older and then I you know had the capacity to start doing my own research I was able to find different types of role models so when did you decide to pursue a career in law like what drew you to to law specifically because as you said your focus was initially sport and then switched to to the academic side of things so how did you hone in on law 
So growing up in Hackney, before it was posh, before the Olympics came, there was a lot of deprivation and a lot of people that were around me that I went to school with were involved in criminality. And from a young age, I'd always been someone that was good at speaking, particularly speaking on behalf of others. So organically, I naturally gravitated towards roles that were linked to being the person that spoke on behalf of others. So at every stage in school, I would be the person that would be elected class representative. I'd be the person elected to be the spokesperson. And that was something I didn't actually appreciate until looking backwards. And then that just gravitated towards, okay, which professions are best suited for that skill set? And before doing the podcast, I went to look at my national record of achievement folder. For those that are you know old enough to remember, they'll know that's the folder that you got when you left um, secondary school. Um, you'd get a folder at the beginning of year nine, and any achievement that you obtained, you'd keep in the folder. So if there was a certificate for good attendance, if you won a sports day, it'd be all in that folder. You'd write down at the beginning what it was you hoped to achieve once you left school. And at the end of the year, you looked at the folder and then you looked at the growth and development that you had in your, you know, secondary school life. And when I looked in the folder, it had, you know, lawyer. And it was like clear as day. But I couldn't even remember it before looking back into that folder that I kind of had that concept at a time when I was when I was studying. Yeah, I feel like for, for, for me, I feel like my version of that would have just been my yearbook. And it's funny, in my yearbook, I think it said, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And at the time, because I love football and that's what I was doing, I said, oh, playing for Arsenal. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. So, so again, you wanted to be an athlete as well? Yeah, that's that's actually where my head was at. When I was in school, I just had this whole thing about I want to play football professionally, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, life happens and you... You say that, but I think that's a lot to do with teachers. I genuinely feel that looking back, a lot of the kind of conditioning that we have in terms of our ambitions and aspirations is subtly done by teachers. You may say, oh, you know, you're, you're really good at sports, so they'll compliment you in particular aspects and not compliment you in others. So then you then feel that those are the particular areas or spaces that you should occupy. Yeah, true. I'm thinking about what you're saying and it's, when you're in those shoes, you probably don't realise the influence those compliments and those comments have. It's only when you look backwards, you think, oh, actually, yeah, that could have been, you know. Yeah, like I guarantee you, no one said to you, so you'll be an amazing businessman, entrepreneur. No one said that to you. No one said that you were, they were very keen to put you into, you know, occupations that required the use of strength or your physical ability, not things that needed your cognitive skill set. It's just a weird thing. And I'm just making that assumption based on the fact that you probably didn't go to a posh grammar school. Because if you go to good schools, they raise your aspirations and they condition you and tell you, you can be great, you can be anything. If you go to schools that aren't necessarily that good, they're just like, mm, well, we'll be happy if you go to university. There's, listen, you can tell a good school, yeah, by the fact that you know they judge themselves that, oh, we have 10 people that go to university each year, as opposed to we have former prime ministers, former you know, um, business owners. Yeah, very true. And that's something that like, only as you get older, you become more and more alive to think, wow. I love that point you made because a friend of mine who's now a professional athlete, he went to uh, Whitgift, a school called Whitgift, and they have England international footballers, cricketers, you know, from that school, so many big talents that have 
gone there in business and sport. And as you said, even when he mentioned his school, his point of reference was exactly that. Oh, you know, this person went to my school and that person went to my school and that, you know. And as you said, it, it just shows you the level of, you know, the teaching and, and the aspirations they have in that school that as soon as you hear that, as a kid, you think, yeah, I want to go to that school. If, if all these big people are coming from there, there's clearly a recipe for success, which I want to be a part of. And then also, you think that by being there, you're able, you're capable of doing it. So it's not only the fact that you want to go there because you think that, well, by being in that place where the same greats have been, I'm going to be great too. Uh, whilst we're on the subject of, of learning school education, so you studied at uh, London Metropolitan University. So tell me a bit about undertaking one of the most difficult degrees. I think law's, law is quite hard. I did law at, um, uh, six, in sixth form and I found that super tough. It was hard, but you've gone and done it at university level and it's quite a competitive degree as well. So tell me about that. <laughs> Don't use me as the benchmark for... Um law undergraduate because I obtained this 2-2 so um, and although it was a combination of um, external factors such as working part-time jobs it was because I didn't enjoy I didn't enjoy the degree that there's a lot of things that people don't really teach you Um, and if I had learned that it didn't matter what degree you got you could be a lawyer I would never have done law because what happens is this is that when you're applying for jobs they look at the degree classification. So if I had done English or history and got a first, um, I could have still qualified to be a lawyer. Um, But people fall into this misconception that they have to do law at A-level, they have to do law at undergraduate, when the law that you're learning at those levels isn't the same law you're going to learn at postgraduate. So at every stage I've learned law, I've been told to forget what I've learned before. So I finished university, went to law school, like, whatever you learn in law school, forget about that. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> I qualify for, I, I, I qualify and leave law school and I'm about, about to start practicing as a barrister and they say, whatever you learn in law school, forget about it. So you think, whoa. And that's um, expensive things to forget about. Yeah, I was about to say the, the the time and the money invested and someone just saying, yeah, scrap that stage, we're on to a new level. It's, it's As you said, it's quite difficult to um to process also when you were at uni um one of your careers advisors told you that you won't be able to make it to bar school with your grades obviously having had a two twos and most people in that in that situation don't have like the mental resolve or the toughness to kind of fight back and you know go through and come out the other side which you did how did you kind of deal with the setback and turning that around there's there's one thing i learned right don't allow the opinions of others to define your identity or reality, right? And in life, it's very easy for us to be influenced and shape our views and realities of ourselves based on others, but we're in control. And for me, going through that period of time of having, you know, someone who I thought was supposed to be there to help and encourage me, um, it actually motivated me. Um, I'm kind of a weird person where. Um, most of my success can be attributed to the fact that someone told me not to do it or that I was not good enough. That actually bizarrely motivates me. Um, um, I don't really do well with compliments. I I prefer someone saying you're not really good enough. And I'm like, okay, I'll show you. Um, And that's pretty much been the philosophy that's worked for me. Everyone's different. But I found that, you know, when the careers advisor said to me that I wouldn't make it, I was like, 
I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to come back to university and you're going to have to celebrate me. <laughs> um, and she did. <laughs> so um, that that's pretty much been like how I did it in terms of like general advice for how p- others can do it, who may not necessarily be inspired by discouragement. What I would say is that um, the biggest problem people have is that they have no long-term perspective. So from what I've learned, most of the successful people in in life are only successful because they have long-term perspective they know where they want to be in the next 50 years Um, and when you have that long-term perspective you won't be discouraged because you know that even if for example there are obstacles or bumps in the way um you're going to get there it's kind of akin to um when you're going on a long journey long-term perspective you know that if you encounter roadworks or blocks that there are different ways for you to get to the journey you may have to deviate off course to come back onto course but you can only have that um paradigm if you have the long-term perspective in the first point and for me it was like well it didn't matter how long it was going to take I was going to become a barrister so it meant that all of the rejections all of the things that I experienced were just you know me realizing I'm actually coming closer to the thing I want and adjusting where I needed to adjust. I guess you rightly said there's everyone's different in it and it applies, I guess, differently to how people approach it. But um, what's, what would you say in regards to, I wanted to ask you about the Sainsbury story. I wanted you to tell it. I found that quite, quite interesting and a real, you know, a real sign of your spirit and determination of becoming a barrister. Um. So, yeah, so the, so the way that um, I got my first opportunity to become a barrister was that I worked in Sainsbury's in Dalston um, for about six years. Um, so as soon as I finished my GCSEs, um, I went out handing CVs and I got a part-time job. Um, so whilst I was studying um, at university, um, it dawned on me that I actually needed some legal experience um, if I wanted to become a barrister. Um, I didn't have any connections um, in law and I decided that I was going to tell everyone I met that I wanted to be a lawyer and ask them if they knew anyone that could help me. And a lot of people that wanted to do their shopping were pissed off and annoyed at the fact that, you know, I was interrupting them on a Saturday morning to tell them about my goals and aspirations. (laughs) But I was fortunate enough that one of the employees that worked on the meat and fish department, his best friend's dad was a barrister um, and he said he would ask. Um, And that was it. I was in. And that taught me the important lesson that if you don't ask, the answer will always be no. And that was the philosophy that I adopted after that experience. So I, I got the work experience um, and this barrister shared with me how he got into law. Again, um, similar, um, non-privileged background, no connections, and he shared with me secrets. Um, again, that helped me so much because the reason why a lot of people make mistakes is that they don't learn from the mistakes of others that have come before them. All we want to do is find out you know, what do we need to do to become good? But my philosophy is, what did you do wrong? I want to avoid what you did wrong. We all know what we're supposed to do, to be fair. The things that no one prepares us for are the adversities and the unforeseen haphazards that that we come across. So I just made sure that anytime I met anyone that was more knowledgeable than me, um, 
or that was more experienced in a particular area, I'd be asked him, what were the mistakes or things I should look out for? So that was a second lesson I learned on that journey. Um, and I applied that throughout. I just kept asking people. Um, and one of the things that it's quite difficult for people that don't come from privilege is asking for help. I think that we have um, an amplified sense of pride where although we're struggling, we don't want anybody to know we're struggling. And if you compare that to people from privileged backgrounds, they are not shy to ask for something. They will say they want this, they want. Whereas, you know, there's maybe a, a, an issue of confidence where we feel that, you know, we don't deserve it and that we shouldn't ask for help. Like, it's just a very weird inferiority complex um, that I had to overcome. And that was like one of my biggest barriers. It was confidence. It wasn't really, you know, not being capable enough to do the job. Um, it wasn't even not necessarily having a network. It was just the confidence to put myself forward and to be uncomfortable. Um, and once I was able to do that, I asked for help. I put myself in environments that um, I was the only person from my background there. Um, and that's what, you know, catapulted me to where I am today. So in 2007, obviously, you become a barrister. You're working at Old Bailey on a string of serious and high-profile murder cases. What would you say were, like, the standout moments, cases from your early career, you know, that kind of helped you transition to where you are now? Um, the first case that I ever did, um, I remember it was at Uxbridge Magistrates Court. It was possession of a bladed article. My client was a crackhead and my client didn't turn up. And I was literally panicking because it was my first day in court. I didn't know what to do. Um, and I had to persuade um, the magistrates to adjourn the case and not to issue a warrant for arrest for my client. I was successful. They gave me 24 hours. I came back the following day. My client turned up eight hours. Well, I'm exaggerating. Court was at 10. The client didn't turn up until half past four the following day. And I was still able to persuade them not to lock her up and give her a bell. Um, she pleaded guilty. We came back in four weeks and I was able to keep her out of prison. And that, for me, was um, the first experience of feeling like I can actually do this job. I was quite persuasive. Um, it was a difficult case. Um, and, I, and I got what the, was in the best interest for the client. The second case was my first trial. Now, what happens when you're a junior barrister, um, there are days where you don't have any work to do. So you go into chambers and you're on standby. So if someone's been arrested overnight in the police station or there's a case that, for some reason, someone else can't cover. Last minute, you f you fill in like a substitute. So you go to court and act on a person's behalf. Lo and behold, I get given a trial. So I get a phone call at 9.30 in the morning saying, Tunde, go to Redbridge Magistrates Court. And I'm like, what? Yeah, you've got a trial. I said, one minute. Like, what time's the trial? Half 10. <laughs> I was like, what? So where's the papers? Oh, you'll collect them at court. <laughs> I go to court and I collect the papers. I go, into, I go in front of the magistrates and I say to the magistrates, um, I need some more time. I've just received the papers. I'm not ready. And they say, how long would you need? I said, I need a day. They said, you've got 30 minutes, <laughs> right? So I had to read the case in 30 minutes, speak to the client, prepare the case, um, go into court and act on his behalf. I did it and I won, right? That was the best feeling in the world, like winning. 
like not guilty was the best feeling in the world, particularly in the magistrates' court, as you never really win in the magistrates' court. So I thought, I'm the best. So after that moment, I was winning cases back to back to back to back to back. I'd never lost until one day I appeared at Westminster Magistrates' Court and I lost for the first time and my client got sent to prison. That was the most painful experience. Like, even though I've had subsequent losses, but that first loss hurt. And it taught me a valuable lesson in terms of winning and losing, learning, um, not being complacent when you're on a winning streak, um, not allowing, you know, results to determine how you feel. Because sometimes you can do a really great job but not get the result. So those early experiences shaped me just in terms of how I approach the work that I do today. One thing I've always been curious about um, about lawyers is, do you ever feel conflicted when representing a client? Define conflicted. As in... An, an easy example, right? You know, like the OJ Simpson documentary where like Robert Kardashian obviously was his friend and ended up on his legal team. And you see through the throughout the, well, un, we've only seen the TV version of what really happened, but throughout the episode, it shows times where you can see that he really wants to help his client, who's also his friend. But then a part of him is also conflicted because he doesn't agree with everything that's happening. So do you ever face anything like that in your career or was it strictly as you see it? As you- no, like um, one of the kind of hallmarks of being a bad barrister is that you have to have the independence and detachment. So you don't necessarily, you don't have that kind of conflict in terms of, oh, I want to do this, but, but I can't. It doesn't really work um, in the same way. I think that there are some cases that, are very difficult because of the human element of the case. So, for example, um, there was a case a few years ago where a five-year-old got shot um, in some rival gang crossfire in South London. And as a result of her being shot, she was paralysed for life. Okay? And that case um, was difficult because a lot of, you know, my family and friends that knew I was doing the case were like, well, how can you, you know, act for someone accused of doing something so horrific to someone so young and then having to explain to those people that that's my job, that that's, that's the issue for people not understanding that, you know, it's my job and people misconstrue what the purpose of, you know, a court case is. People think that a court case is the investigation of the truth. Um, it's not. A court case is a fact-finding exercise. You go to court because someone brings forward a claim or an allegation. Um, And within that forum, that allegation or claim is either proven or disproven. That's it. It's not about what really happened. Let's get that. It it, it isn't. And when people kind of have an appreciation for what it really is, then they can understand why there is that level of detachment and why you're able to be so detached. I think you couldn't have given a, a better answer. Even now, I after you saying that, even now I understand it much clearer because exactly I was in the same boat as, as you said, like your family and friends who would ask that type of question, but now you've, you know, cleared it up. But now I'm a bit more, um, a bit more assured. Also, did you have a clear idea of which area you wanted to specialize in early on? When I, when I first started, I didn't, I just knew that I was, I should be a barrister. Um, and I got work experience, um, in different areas of law. 
to try and see which ones kind of suited my personality and the ones that I felt I'd probably be best at. Um, and crime, I just naturally gravitated towards crime. Um, all of the others were interesting in different for different reasons, but but crime just felt like it was me. I went to court, I saw barristers, you know, doing a particular case, and I felt I could do that. And in fact, I could do it better. And that was pretty much um, the reason why you know I gravitated towards it. But that being said, as I've kind of developed in my career, I have kind of branched out into different areas. So certainly when I first started out, the attraction was, you know, the fast pace, um, deeply dramatic and theatrical criminal um, side of law. But now um, I do do some commercial and some slash business stuff too. Yeah. And I saw you also became a um, registered sports agent as well, which we'll touch on um, a bit later. I wanted to move forward now to Urban Lawyers. I know you founded the charity Urban Lawyers in 2010 to promote access to the legal profession among those marginalized in society. And I wanted you to speak on the inspiration behind the charity, because obviously I understand your backstory and I guess that plays a part, but I just kind of wanted to hear what led you to taking on the responsibility of a charity and the endeavor. So um, the reason why I create Urban Lawyers is that I have a philosophy, which is that success equals service. Um, I was fortunate enough that people gave me an opportunity, supported me throughout my career, um, and I wanted to make sure that the barriers to entry and the obstacles that I encountered didn't exist for those coming behind me. So I wanted to create a charity that did two things. The first thing to help people that wanted to become lawyers, become lawyers, and then the second, educate people about their legal rights, because those are the main questions that I get to this day. Um, how, did you, how did you do it, like, bearing in mind your background? Oh, this happened to my friend, like, and they don't really know their rights. So I decided that, you know, one of the, to, the best thing is to be a problem solver. Let me help people with those problems. And that's what that's what kind of created Urban Lawyers. When it first started, it was called Urban Lawyer. It was just me. And I'd literally go around um, to different areas in my suit offering, you know, educational advice on the law and career advice. Um, and it took years to gain trust because initially people were thinking, what's this guy doing? You know, walking around in his flash suit, like legit, just going around the hood, speaking to young boys, saying, "I'm doing a session in the community centre hall. Come in and speak." And if they thought I was the police, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they see a suit and the alarm bell so, not going. Yeah, so, um, but but that was the more that was the motivation for it. It was just a case that I felt, and I still do feel that you know, if you are fortunate enough to have any f form of success in your life, that you need to be of service and you need to share. So that's what was the genesis for Urban Lawyers um, and still kind of the driving force behind it today. How do you use your experience um, of coming from the bar, from a non-traditional background to support those seeking to do the same? And why is it important for barristers to contribute in this way? I share it through Urban Lawyers. So I share it by sharing my story, one, um, and then I give practical um, tips and advice. So for example, um, and this is applicable to any industry, um, I often say to people, the first thing that you need to do is be very clear about what it is you want to do. 
The sooner you become specific, the sooner you'll be successful. Um, one of the biggest issues is that people want to go somewhere, but they don't know where they want to go. Um, and again, I'll use an analogy. Um, imagine now you, someone gets out of a tube at Bank Station and says, I'm looking for a business office. If they stop 10 strangers, the stranger will simply say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Can you be a bit more specific? If the person was able to say to the strangers they were passing by, well, I'm looking for a business office that's on this road, the stranger will be able to say, well, that road is over there. If the person was able to say the name of the road, the floor, and even the person they were looking for, the stranger may be able to be of great assistance. And a lot of us go through our lives like that, not being clear about where it is we want to go and then being frustrated that when we ask for help, people are not in a position to help us. So the first thing I tell people is that be very clear about where it is you want to go because firstly, you can identify who you need to get direction from. Sometimes people seek direction from people that don't know where they're going themselves, right? Um, the second thing is that if you know exactly where it is you want to go, and it goes back to my first point, that even if it's taking long for you to get there, you're not going to be discouraged because you know where you're going. A lot of the discouragement comes from uncertainty about whether or not it's the right thing that they should be doing. Okay, so I share that with them and I give examples about how I had to learn that the hard way. Because, you know, as I really said earlier, that it will take you a lifetime to learn from your own mistakes. So always learn from the mistakes of others, save the time. And that's pretty much, you know, how I share my experiences in that regard. In terms of, you know, why it's important for barristers to do it, I think it's important for everyone to do it. It's important for entrepreneurs to do it, for athletes, for doctors, for teachers. Um, plumbers it's important that people that have been able to attain any form of success share that information not only because it improves the service in the industry um it also makes it more representative i feel that one of the hallmarks for a fairer society is representation and that's representation for from people of all walks of lives and that only happens by people that have broken the mold and have made it to make sure they open the door for others that are like them. And that's that's pretty much the reason why I do it. And I think it's a good idea that others do do it. And I commend those that do. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you've already helped 7,000 7, people achieve. More than that, more than that, more than that, more than that. Probably <laughs> about 10. Oh, yeah, okay. So you're yeah, sorry for the inaccurate number. We'll go with we'll go with ten. I mean, you know, <laughs> you you know the the organisation better than I do. But um, you've already spoken on some of the ways you help young people. Is there anything else you guys offer? So maybe it could be work placements, CV, clinics, training days. What other services are available through Urban Lawyers? So in terms of the work that I do with Urban Lawyers, um, so there's work experience. Um, there's soft skills training. So we do a national student conference um, where students across the country can come and we will help you develop your soft skills. So advocacy, CV writing, commercial awareness, and we'll get professionals that are leading experts in those areas to develop and help you, you know, um, become more proficient in those, those areas. Um, we give away suits from TM Lewin um, there are, they've been a good sponsor for a number of years because we appreciate that one of the barrier to, barriers to entry sometimes may be something as small as not being able to afford a decent suit. Um, we've historically done scholarships in conjunction with higher 
education institutions where if we can't pay for the course in its entirety, um, we get the institution to agree a fee reduction. So rather than you paying, you know, £10,000 to do um, the bar course, you pay you pay four. So we appreciate that, you know, all of those small things make, you know, participation better for those who otherwise would be discouraged from doing it. Um, we do mentoring. Um, we do insight days with law firms and barristers chambers. Um, we appreciate that sometimes... Um, giving people the opportunity to be in the environment that they want to work in in the future can inspire them to, you know, raise their aspirations and ambitions. Um, we've got ebooks that give information about particular career paths. So whether it's in-house solicitor um, or commercial solicitor or in-house barrister or independent barrister, again, um, I could keep going. Like we 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 put it so we have a strap line which says making the law more accessible to everyone. And that's what we do. And that can range from um, working with young kids in the community to educate them about their legal rights, to inform them about what the career path looks like to becoming a barrister or a solicitor from an early age. Um, that's what we do um, in terms of urban lawyers. It's definitely amazing work. And what would you say are some of the challenges um, facing today's aspiring barristers? I mean, you've already mentioned about you guys helping them to fund the bar school. Are there any um, barriers to entry or challenges you see that they face today and how you think the best way to, do, to address them would be? In every profession, particularly those that are traditional ones, um, and elitist by nature, you'll have three barriers to entry. The first will always be money because it's expensive to study law. Um, the second will be a knowledge gap. Um, people don't know what it is they should be doing, um, so not having necessarily right advice or guidance. Um, and the third is a support network. So even if you have the money, even if you know what to do, sometimes it's difficult because you don't have that support network around you when you have a difficult period when you're in the infancy of your career or whilst you're studying um, and that's applicable across industry so whether or not you're a musician whether or not you're a football player there's always going to be an issue about finance knowledge and support and um, in terms of becoming a barrister um, they apply even like even more um, particularly if you're a barrister that does publicly funded work. So for those that are listening, um, publicly funded work means work that the government pay for. Um, and that type of work isn't remunerated very well. Um, so it means that even if you are a barrister, you could be going to court for as much as £50 a day. So people have this kind of belief that all barristers are rich and it's not true. It's in the same fashion and all football players are rich. It, it all depends on what division um, you're, you're, you're participating in and what type of work you're doing. And the same applies for barristers. So um, those would be the issues that I'd identify that, that the bar has. Um, and also the perception. A lot of people um, have a particular mental vig vision when you say barrister. Um, it will be someone who is middle class, white and male. And not only in terms of the bar, but there are a lot of traditional professions that need to change that because that in itself um, becomes a bar barrier to entry because if people can't identify themselves in a particular role, they won't put themselves forward.
Yeah, and I think uh, the great thing about you is you are helping to change that narrative. Even when I met you and I didn't really know too much about you and what you were doing, and as slowly as I got to know you, I, I was like, wow, okay, there's so much more to you as a person and everything you're doing that, as you said, if you, if we were going off like the stereotypical, probably most people wouldn't even automatically said, oh, he's a barrister, but actually they get to talk to you for five minutes and they go, wow, okay, this guy's on another level. So you're right that I think there's an importance to change that uh, that narrative for sure. The, the big problem you have is that there's always like um, resistance because, you know, although you appreciate it, there are others that don't. You know, there are some people that are more comfortable with the status quo. And, you know, throughout my career, um, I have had backlash of people, you know, not liking the fact that I am very visual on social media. Um, I'm very vocal and visual about, you know, diversity. There are people that don't like it. Okay, there are people that don't like, for example, the fact that um, I attract a lot of, you know, general media attention um, because they feel that the archetype barrister visual needs to be kept intact. So it's great that you appreciate it, but there are lots of people that don't encounter, you know, the same positivity and love. And the best illustration of that, um, and by no way am I comparing myself to her, um, is Serena Williams. She's amazing. You know, she's probably one of the greatest athletes ever but historically she's never been appreciated and treated in that same way and a lot of people will say that you know it's because she's black but it's actually deeper than that it's more because she doesn't look like the archetype tennis player she isn't a slim feminine archetype tennis player that the sport is accustomed to seeing and that was the reason why she encountered a lot of resistance and irrespective of how great she is she still encountered it um and it's the same for there are probably like a, a million examples i can give you so although it's very good to you know try and break those perceptions we have to appreciate that um there's still a lot more work to be done and it needs people like yourself to celebrate publicly those that you recognize as you know being unconventional and changing the public perception as to what it means or what it or what particular roles look like i think as young black men we look at the news we look at the tv we look at the media as a sensationalization right it's all about it's either sports or crime really those are the two kind of things where you see young black men push the most and the fact that you're you know in a position uh, in such a high position as you said in law as a barrister and doing what you're doing, I think it's good because the young generation coming up, even the young black kids who might grow up in these underprivileged areas and not have the opportunities and not come for money will see that and go, hey, do you know what? Here's a guy who looks exactly like me, who's come from a, a very similar place to where I am, and look what he's gone on to achieve. I agree, like spot on. Um, and it's actually refreshing to hear that um, I've been able to have, you know, some sort of impact um, because that's the, arguably the most important thing. Yeah. And um, now I want to move on a bit to key moments in your working life. And uh, in 2014, you appeared in the case to overturn the conviction of Dwayne George, who had been convicted of murder in 2002. You worked with 
young Cardiff law students to overturn the conviction and see George free. How is it important for you to give the underrepresented a voice and teach others to do the same? Very important. Um, that case was, um, yeah, that, that case changed me. It's very powerful because it's a case that involved, you know, a young black man from Manchester that was convicted of murder in 2002. Um, he'd always maintained his innocence um, and he was convicted um, applying the joint enterprise principle. So even though it wasn't the prosecution's case that um, he was a shooter, um, it was a prosecution's case that he was involved, um, but they couldn't particularize what his involvement was. Okay, that, 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 that the strength of the case. And for me, it was just powerful, the fact that this guy did his time. So he literally served time in prison, was released on license. Um, he got a first-class law degree whilst in prison, comes out, still maintains his innocence. Um, Cardiff University law students um, bring the case to me, um, and we're able to get it referred um, back to the Court of Appeal. And to this day, it's the only student-led criminal appeal that's been successful in the country. So it was powerful just because it demonstrates that justice will persevere. It may it may take time, um, and that unfortunately um, can discourage a lot of people. But um, he got that conviction overturned. He's married now. He runs a number of successful businesses. Um, and it was just powerful that it changed his perception of law and lawyers. I think I was the first black lawyer he saw. <laughs> um, so that was quite powerful in terms of the dialogue that we exchanged during the process. Um, and I think that, you know, the underrepresented in society need justice um, as much as everyone else because there is that misconception that justice isn't for them. And I feel that that will change when representation at every level is more reflective of society. I feel that even a term underrepresented will disappear when there are more barristers that come from those backgrounds taking on and doing the cases. But we need to ensure that there's the support network, the money um, and the knowledge that's being shared with those up and coming so that they don't be discouraged and leave. And, that, and that's, the, that's, the, that's the problem. But I, I think it's, it's very important um, and it can just change um, their lives as well as, you know, those that are delivering the service. Like for me to kind of, you know, speak to this person, like this, that person could have been like my little brother, you know, um, and, you know, hearing about his experience, him going to prison um, for 12 years, because literally he did, his, he did 12 years, came out, was on license for life while we were going through the process and just seeing his face when he heard the conviction is going to be quashed and his record will be expunged. It was just powerful. So that was like a, yeah, that was a that was a powerful moment in terms of uh, my career. Obviously moving forward to 2016, you received an MBE for your services to the community and disadvantaged young people. How important was this to you and given the hurdles you've had to overcome to to achieve and be in that position, was that was it like a fulfilling moment for you? How did you you know how did you take that experience? You know the, the weirdest thing about it, right, is that in life, um, every time I've wanted something, I've never got it. So 
Um, there are lots of times where there have been awards and accolades that I feel I've deserved. At the time I've wanted them, I've not got it. It came out of the blue in terms of the NBA. Like I was like, whoa. And it was a powerful reminder that things don't happen quickly, but they happen suddenly. So you can work really hard and, you know, feel that your time is now, your time is now, and it doesn't happen. But then suddenly it just changes. And that's pretty much what happens for most um, successful people and people in life generally. And, you know, having the opportunity to go and collect the MB, take my parents along with me was, was just great. It was amazing. Um, I think it was amazing not only for the opportunity, um, but amazing because of the spotlight. Um, I was able to be a visual representation to other young people that this is something that's possible. You know, I was 32 at the time when I got it. And um, even to, to this day, people are still like, wow, like you were really young when you got it. And I feel that one of the things that has helped me is that I look to people that have done remarkable things at a very early stage in their career or at a young age. And that inspires me. And I just hope that when I do certain things, it has the same impact on others. Out of curiosity is what I was to hear. This is more a selfish question, but what are the, like, what are some of the perks that come with having an MBE or you've noticed in your, in your time of having an MBE? When you say perks, right? So the, the, the perks are that I can get married in St. Paul's Cathedral. I can, um, you know, christen my children at St. Paul's Cathedral. I get invited to, you know, the garden party at the palace and, and other particular events. Um, I'm invited to, to be on boards and speak at events. So it's good in terms of raising your profile um, and creating opportunities and networks which you wouldn't otherwise have. Um, but I just want to stress that, you know, the most important thing is the work. So it's good to have the accolades, but, you know, doing the work in itself is more important. So, yeah. So, yeah, so, so, so it's fine. So it's like, you know, you have this profile, people are nicer to you. Like, I'm someone who I've worked hard for it. I put it on, on all my documentation, like my credit cards, my passport, everything, and people are just nicer to you, to be fair. They're like, oh, wow. So it's, it's kind of like a um, an elevation in terms of status. So, yeah, it's it's it's, it's a nice feeling. It's a, it's a very nice feeling. Um, people generally regard it as a recognition for, you know, service um, to society. So people treat me as someone who's positively contributing. So it's great from that regard. And you also received an honorary uh, doctorate award from Sheffield Hallam University in 2017. How did that, how did that come about? Um, as part of Urban Lawyers, um, Urban Lawyers operates in five cities and Sheffield is one of them. And what I decided to do was design a law module for law students to go to Sheffield Hallam University. And the law module is um, an outreach project in the sense that I would teach law students six times throughout the academic um, year. And they would go out and teach kids in their local areas that don't go to poor schools. So there were two elements. They would teach them firstly about a particular area of law that might be relevant to an issue that the school has. 
So if the school had a drug problem, they'd teach kids about the law surrounding drugs. If the schools had a bullying problem, they'd teach us. And then the second element would be a careers aspect. They'll teach the young kids, this is what you need to do if you want to become a lawyer. So I designed a specific module, and that module counts towards um, the student's final degree. Um, and they'd, they'd get a certificate, um, which would have urban lawyers, the name of the module, and I'd give out awards to the people that did the best on the course. Um, I did that for two years before getting the doctorate in recognition for creating the course. You are completely right that, you know, the work is the most important thing. And because you've never really done this for the accolades, naturally, you know, the awards and everything have just come based off the fact that you've been dedicated to actually delivering on what you set out to achieve. Exactly. So, um, and I still do. So that's kind of my attitude now in terms of, everything I do I think about how I measure impact so what can I do that will create the most impact um, and that's pretty much the the bar stick or barometer for the work that I'm involved in like what will create the most impact what would you say is your biggest achievement thus far in your career uh, that's a hard question um it depends what it's a hard question because same biggest, it's all subjective because someone could say, well, you know, featuring in GQ, um, you know, list of the world's most influential men, featuring in their book, the MBE, the doctorate, becoming a master bench. Like, there's so many things, right? Um, but it depends on what you define as big. For me, the thing that's perhaps had the most meaning to me um, was is urban lawyers okay so, so that in the sense of like what 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 means the most to me is urban lawyers because urban lawyers was the catalyst for everything else without urban lawyers you know most of the other stuff wouldn't have happened so urban lawyers would always be the first but in terms of biggest i don't know like there's like it depends on if you're saying to me which thing has made the most money which thing has got you the most press i don't know you see what I mean? So I don't know how to answer it. Yeah, now I hear you on that one. But you touched on the um, uh, the master bench. Tell me a bit about that because I know you're one of the. Aren't you the youngest person ever? If I'm not mistaken. Um, apparently so. Um, so being a master bencher, just for those that are not familiar with the term, um, all barristers in England and Wales have to be attached to an Inns of Court. There are four of them. Um, Inner Temple, Middle Temple, Gray's Inn and Lincoln's Inn. Um, And those inns are responsible for your professional development as a barrister um, and for calling you as a barrister. So there's a ceremony in which you officially become a barrister and you have to be a member of one of those inns. I am essentially a director of one of the inns. That's pretty much what being a master bencher is. So I'm involved in the direction and governance for all of those barristers that are already members and the new ones that are coming in. So I have that responsibility in terms of um, helping shape the legal profession. Um, Ordinarily, it's something that you don't get unless you've been in the profession for like 25, 30 years plus. Um, And I was fortunate to get it for the work that I've done today so early. Another question I wanted to ask you is, what's the most rewarding aspect of your job? For me, the most rewarding aspect of my job is I learn something new every day. 
So the personal development aspect of it. Um, being a barrister, you're self-employed. So your capacity to earn money, your capacity for growth is solely reliant on yourself. You get what you put in. So the most rewarding aspect for the job is is that for me. Um, if I don't want to work, I don't have to, but I'm not going to get paid. <laughs> um, if I work really hard, then I get paid a bit more. Um, if I learn a bit more, develop my craft and skill set, then, you know, my capacity for growth, um, you know, is, is unlimited. So for me, it's just the personal development aspect. I'm always learning. I have the ability to be involved in people's lives for a short period of time and then jump back out again. And it's like the deep aspects of their lives because these are cases that will probably shape and influence people for forever. And I get to kind of get in, get a brief snapshot of it, help them where possible and then go. So, you know, there's that aspect. There's also the service. Um, being a barrister, in essence, um, the primary role is service you know, making sure that you do the best for your client and you, you make sure that the process is for, fair for them and that you're striving to get the best result for them. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, also, I know you're very active, um, as you said, in mainstream media, you know what I mean, with your Instagram accounts. Uh, you mentioned the GQ, you know, the influential uh, men list. And I just wanted to ask you uh, your views on the importance of social media and having a voice online, especially in regards to fighting for inequality, um, how you see social media playing a role. Because as you said, traditionally, barristers probably don't even have Instagram accounts, whereas you've kind of, kind of flipped the script. You, you're still, you've still managed to achieve everything you have in your career and also ma maintain a valuable online presence which which you know you always post very relevant stuff whether it's inspiration whether it's work related whether it's about inequality you're always pushing a positive message out um social media is more important than we anticipate because in essence we live in two spaces we live online and we live offline um and increasingly we're living more online than we do offline um, as a byproduct of COVID-19, most people's lives have been online, whether it's been via Zoom, Skype, Skype for Business, Microsoft Teams, Instagram Live. People have spent their lives online. So um, it's very important that um, your message and who you are is consistent with, you know, who you are offline. I feel that it's a personal choice as to whether or not you are vocal about issues. Um, I think you should be, but some people contribute to causes in different ways. Um, there are some silent contributors that contribute more than those that make the loudest noise. So social media isn't necessarily the best forum for, for everyone. Um, I use it personally because I have um, a decent-sized profile um, and a lot of the work that I do um, is channeled through social media but that doesn't mean that everyone has to do it I feel that in this current climate the only way that people are aware of injustices um, and where people can have you know honest unfiltered discussions about it is via social media it doesn't happen anywhere else yeah and also whilst we're on the subject of social media uh 
talk to me about the new um the OCAAT fund um you recently set up and yeah just tell me a bit about that and your your ambition with it so as a direct consequence of um the tragic and avoidable murder of George Floyd there was a ripple effect in the United Kingdom um which caused a large number of people to reevaluate and reassess the injustices that happened in this country, um, particularly in relation to race. And one of the biggest barriers for justice is money. So myself and a number of other legal organisations decided to create a fund which would help identify representation and assist with the financial matters that are linked to administering justice. So the one OCAT, which stands for one case at a time, um, is designed for that very purpose. It's focused on racial injustice and helping people that otherwise wouldn't be able to, to be able to receive justice without money or representation. And that's it. It's in its infancy, so we're in the process of registering to be incorporated as a charity. Um, We've created a GoFundMe for those members of the public that want to contribute um, to the fund. They can do so. We've raised about £25,000. We have a number of um, law firms that have committed to working with us, um, meet our objectives. So I'm confident that, you know, in the next year to 18 months, there'll be an institution that meet that can contribute to reducing um, injustices that are based, you know, on race, and um, perhaps even eradicating them. But I know it's going to be a long task um, and a long journey. What I'll also do is I'll put the um, all the details as well for OCAT in the bio, so you know all the details are available, including the social accounts and the the GoFundMe page. Also, going back to your career, uh, I know you're passionate about public speaking, you know, from speaking at schools, prisons, universities, TED Talks. I've, I actually watched your TED Talk and I loved one of the quotes I loved you said is role, mo- role models are not enough. And I wanted to ask, you know, what did you what did you mean by that? Thanks for watching it. <laughs> um so when I when I did that TED talk, the concept of um, the talk was just about the importance of us not relying on external heroes to the extent that we become immobilized from taking actions and becoming heroes ourselves. So a lot of people, you know, will attribute the lack of, you know, success and achievement to there not being enough visible role models. Um, and my point was that having more role models isn't enough, that more needs to be done um, to change the status quo of society. And for me, I feel that role models are great, but there also needs to be the responsibility on the individual to take action and change their life and change their life for others. I kind of was calling on the general public to take individual responsibility and appreciate that all parts contribute to the whole, that all of us have an important role in shaping our society and that we can't just rely on a small group of people um, to be the leaders and do everything for us. That in fact, there are certain things that only we can do and that we should do them. So that was the um, driving force for it. 
Um, I also stress the importance of um, the soft bigotry of low expectations because one of the, the barriers for lots of people is the limiting beliefs that others have inadvertently, in most cases, placed on them. So whether it's uh, a family, whether it's uh, teachers, whether it's siblings saying, well, you know, you can't do that. And the impact that that can have on on young people, um, particularly when they're growing up. So that was the, the motivation behind it. And hopefully the message that was conveyed to those that listened to it. I've got another one called The Solution to Crime that I'll be doing soon. So I'll let you know when I'm doing that one. Yeah, please. And also earlier you spoke, uh, you referenced obviously the George Floyd situation. And, you know, as we've seen in America, the cases are piling up of incidents, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, the running incident, the the Central Park situation of that woman obviously calling the police um, and accusing the guy. Then you hear you've obviously got the new BBC documentary that just came out about the Windrush generation. I just wanted to ask you, because obviously you're in, you're in uh, a legal standing position, what solutions you see possible for us to build uh, a better tomorrow for not just for ourselves, but for our, for our kids and for the, for the next generations to come, especially for, for the black community. I've got a very um, simple solution. Um, and I don't mean to, you know, undermine the importance of the difficulties and struggles that are going on across the world. But I feel that the cause of underrepresentation sorry, the cause of over-representation, so whether that's in terms of the criminal justice system, deaths in police custody, um, deaths at the hand of the police, is due to under-representation. I feel that if there were more um, black police officers, black judges, black lawyers, black MPs, politicians, governors, um, people that were integral to the decision-making process, um, things would be fairer. What happens now is that the decision-makers don't reflect the society that we live in. And I don't say that it's deliberate, but it's going to be very difficult for them to take into consideration the needs for those that they don't know or that they're not familiar with. Um, They're not going to have the sensitivities that's needed. And that can only change by there being representation at every level. Um, so if, for example, we had, you know, a, a senior judge, that judge may take a very different view in terms of, you know, sentencing. If we had um, senior police officers, the culture of the police changes because a lot of people blame institutions and organisations, but organisations um, are influenced by the culture of leadership. And if the leadership doesn't have the sensitivity or representation needed to have that sensitivity, then you're not going to have fairness. Um, All you'll have is superficial changes being made, but the results will continue to be the same. So what needs to be done is that there needs to be better representation across the board. Um, And that's politics, law, business. Um, I was looking at an article the other day which was you know making reference to to wealth in the country um and it mentioned that in the financial times rich list that 
um, there were hardly any black people in the rich list, um, that the Asian community had seen an increase. Um, and I'm not including sports and musicians. I'm talking about in the sense of business and other occupations. And that was quite important. That was quite interesting because if you looked at the current government cabinet, there's not one black person on there. You have two Asian members or Asian members that have, you know, ancestry or lineage that can be linked to that part of the world. And I feel that by having that representation, um, decisions, discussions and policies will be changed to be fairer for all that are involved. Um, the problem that we have is how do we get that representation? Is it through targets or is it through quotas? Do we have a policy where we say, look, we must have one black person doing this role or do we set a target saying that the goal is to do this, but if we don't, then we don't. And that is going to be the big issue. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more as well because I had this conversation with someone recently and I said, you know what, if I think of all the successful black people I know who are in prominent positions, whether in business, here, then, everywhere, I can probably list all of them off my head. But when I think of like, the white people I know who are super successful, right? The list is endless. It goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. I probably couldn't even tell you all of them. And it just shows you straight away. It's not because there's a lack of black people who are successful or can't do this, these roles. It's just, it's just not a, it's not a common theme. You don't, you know, I even look at it in hospitality. You look at hotels, you look at this, that, and the other. When you look at Mayfair as a whole, all the places we love and enjoy, there's still such an underrepresentation of people who look like you and I. Spot on, spot on. Like even for example, um, a lot of the places that we frequent, the nice places we frequent, how many of them, you know, have leadership or ownership that are like the people that occupy it? <laughs> they don't, that's the point, they don't. So how are they going to have policies, right, that serve the interest of those people if they, they can't relate to them? I'm not justifying. I'm not justifying the behaviour by it. I'm not saying, oh well, that means that you know it's not intentional. I'm just simply saying that the way to solve the problem is to address that representation. Whilst we're coming towards the end, obviously you're still only mid thirties. You've become a successful barrister, you know, uh, master of the bench, um, registered lawyer under the FA football regulations as an agent you know, at the doctorate, you've got an MBE, you've achieved so much with urban lawyers and the impact, you know, 10,000 young people you've helped. I just wanted to ask you, A, how do you stay motivated and stay driven having achieved so much already that most people would achieve half of that and be like, you know what, if nothing else happens in life, I'm content. And the second question is, what's next for you? I can't tell you that. <laughs> I'm not telling you. That. I'm not telling that's, you that. That's the barrister in you. you it's not even. Listen, it's not even. It's not even the bar. It's not even the barrister in me. It's just more a case of maybe I'm superstitious in my life. Anytime I've told someone that I'm going to do something, it doesn't actually happen. When I've not said anything or made any announcements, then it does. So for me, the best course of action would be to you know make less announcements and take more action. Um, and that's the approach that I'm going to adopt. You know, um, you'll be aware of the journey that I'm going to take because it'll be something that, you know, you see um, and hopefully you'll be contributing towards. But other than that, I don't intend to make any big announcements as to, you know, 
what's coming in the future. The only thing I will say is, you know, support the current initiatives that um, I'm currently involved in, Urban Lawyers um, and the OCAP Fund, and, yeah, watch this space. Um, there are some big things happening, um, but I won't be disclosing them. <laughs> I've always kind of, I wear my heart on my sleeve, and any time I have an idea or a business endeavour I'm working on, you can't help but just want to express that and share that with people. And I do agree with you that sometimes I will do that and get excited and think, what's going on? Like, this isn't what I thought it would be. This isn't working out how. But the times I've actually just done what you've said is just gone behind closed doors, worked on something, and then announced it once it's, like, ready to go. You're right that you get so you have so much more success when you just stay quiet and then just pop up with, you know, a set initiative, a business, or whatever it is you do, really. That's the best way to do it. Best way to do it because um, I don't know. Like, unless the unless the person's going to be involved in the process, it doesn't make any sense. Like announcing, it doesn't make any sense announcing and sharing. Just do the work. Just to get the work done, and then when it's finished, the work will speak for itself. You don't have to make any announcements or tell anyone what you're going to do. They will have seen that you've done it. So that's pretty much. Uh, my view quite old school but yeah it's just 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 my view now i respect that and um the closing question i ask all the guests that come onto the podcast um as you know the title is can i get a picture so who is the one person that inspires you that you would love to have your picture taken with and why the one person that inspires me that i'd love to have my picture taken with uh dead or alive both <laughs> well, it has to be alive i guess and not um, right, both both yeah um all right, all right i'll do both um i'd say barack obama and the reason why is um i was fortunate enough to meet him in 2012 but i didn't get to get, take a picture <laughs> um so i'd want to take a picture <laughs> yeah just for that reason um and dead would be malcolm x I, I feel that, like, as a human being, he went through the most personal growth that that I've been made aware of that anybody can. Like, he went from criminal to global leader, spokesperson for a whole community. The way he changed his political and ideological views. So he started off being extreme on one hand to them having a concept of, okay, um, let's work together. So just in terms of his, his growth, as a human being, just phenomenal. I'd love to have a picture of him. So, yeah. Thanks again to Tunde for taking the time to chat with me. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Can I Get a Picture Pod? And we'll be back again next week with another episode. 